Welcome to Stay Grounded with your host, me, Raj Jana. I'm the founder of Java Press Coffee Company, and my life changed after my mentor died with three months left until retirement. That experience inspired me to start a personal journey to discover how we can all live a purpose-driven and meaningful life starting today. I interview everyone from best-selling authors and business moguls to extreme athletes and monks to discuss happiness, success, and fulfillment to uncover powerful takeaways that empower you to stay grounded and make passionate living a reality. To access post-podcast discussions, insights, and further resources, visit rajjana.com forward slash stay grounded. So thanks for joining me today. Now, let's get to grinding. Yo, yo, what's up, everyone? And welcome to this week's episode of Stay Grounded. I hope you're all having an amazing, brilliant, grounded date so far. I am so stoked and excited to be introducing my brother and this week's incredible guest, Mr. Rian Doris. So Rian is the co-founder and chief executive officer at the Flow Research Collective, which is a potent training organization driven to understand the science behind ultimate human performance. They're really on a mission to helping people live their best lives by accessing concepts like flow, by leaning into your fears and really tapping into intrinsic motivation and and helping us all sort of really navigate this human experience with more grace and frameworks for, for, for potent creative output. I adore Rian. I mean, we met at a, an entrepreneur conference or a retreat a few months ago. We sat next to each other at dinner and I was just so blown away with his soul deep commitment to leadership development. And he's pretty young too. I mean, for his age and the amount of depth that he's been able to access in the fields of human performance is, is astounding. And I can't wait for you guys to experience his brilliance. I mean, Rian has gone shoulder to shoulder with best-selling authors, pioneering neuropsychiatrists, and world experts in peak performance as a result of his work with the Flow Research Collective. And we talked about so many incredible concepts, everything from the role of curiosity and fascination in creating a fulfilling life, the gift of creating incredible decisions, using your intuition combined with logic, the role of surrender when solving problems, very practical tips for actually creating incredible decisions and making the best decisions that are in most alignment with your highest truth and so much more. I mean, I really, I was inspired after this conversation. Truly, the human capacity is exponential. And the more I learn different tools for evoking altered states, or the more I meet individuals like Rian that have so much depth and wisdom of how the nervous system actually works and how the human body functions as an entity with a mind, a body, a spirit, and a heart, the more I begin to understand these different dimensions of the human experience, the more grateful I am to be alive. I mean, truly, it is such a gift. And if you're listening to this podcast, that means you're interested in understanding the full range of depth in the human experience. And I think this episode is just going to blow you away. Rian is incredible in conversation. He's incredibly smart and well-versed and engaging. And I think this episode is truly going to allow you to see how the concept of flow can transform everything in your life. So enjoy this conversation. If anything that Rian or I said stood out to you, reach out to us on social media. I'm going to tag him in a post to go ahead and let him know if anything resonated with you. Let me know if anything resonates with you. And if you haven't already subscribed to us on iTunes or Spotify or any of the podcast apps, all that means is that every single time we release a new episode, it drops straight into your inbox and give yourself a massive hug. 
Uh, it's almost the end of January. Um, I hope that 2022 is off to a brilliant start. And I hope that the conversations we've been bringing to the table on the show so far have been nourishing, have been giving you a sense of hope, inspiration, and clarity as you navigate how to human in the most beautiful ways possible. So anyways, but without further ado, here is my dear friend and the baller himself, Mr. Rian Doris. Enjoy. Yo, yo, what's up, everyone? And welcome to this week's episode of Stay Grounded. Hope you are all having a brilliant day so far. I am so pumped to be here with my boy, Rian. What's up, brother? It's good to see you, man. Oh. Uh, yeah, I've been excited for this, mainly just to catch up with you. We first uh, met at a, at a business event. We're lucky enough to sit beside each other during dinner and just had the, the funnest, what, two and a half hour jam. Got yeah, up dude. at the end of the dinner and hugged <laughs> with mutual love. So yeah, it's fun, fun to be jammed with you again. It's the best, man. I totally feel just a, a soul brother connection with you. And, um, and I'm grateful that we get to to go deeper in, I, I mean, the conversation we had could have been recorded. It was so damn good. So I'm glad that we get to let others be a fly on the wall for this epic conversation in the making. 100%. Yeah. And thank you for having me again. Yeah, absolutely, brother. All right. Well, let's just go ahead and dive in. So millions of things I could go down the rabbit hole on with you. But one thing I'm curious about is your own perspectives on curiosity and fascination. What role do you think? believe concepts like fascination, awe, wonder, curiosity, like what do those play inside of just the idea of creating a fulfilling life? Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a great, that's a great question. There's a couple of different ways to navigate that question. I mean, the first thing that comes up is related to what we do at the Flow Research Collective. One of the frameworks that we teach and emphasize a lot is based on intrinsic motivation. The difference between intrinsic motivation and extrinsic motivation, simply put, is that when you are intrinsically motivated, you're doing the thing for the sake of the thing itself. When you're extrinsically motivated, you're doing the thing to get some other thing, whether it's money or status or pride or any number of things. And and there's five intrinsic motivators that we talk about, uh, mastery, passion, purpose, and curiosity. Uh, autonomy, sorry, is the fourth one. And then curiosity. And so curiosity is actually a huge driver of flow. It's a driver of intrinsic motivation. And intrinsic motivation, if you can get intrinsic motivation working on your side and you can build up intrinsic motivation around the activities that are you know, the most impactful for you in your life, behavioral change is easy. Showing up to work is easy. You shift from hustle the flow, so to speak. Uh, and so I think curiosity can be a, a really incredibly effective gateway drug into flow and into intrinsic motivation. I also think about curiosity a lot as a compass. It's a really strong signal to follow. You know, a lot of people say that they don't know what they want to do or they don't know what their purpose is. They can't decide, you know, what to do after exiting a startup or whatever it is. And I think, you know, a very simple answer that you can't go too far wrong with is just follow your curiosity or your fascination or your interest. But whenever you feel that pull of interest, lean into it. And it, it tends to lead people 
into good places for a number of different reasons. Yeah. So the pull of interest versus the sort of stopping force that is fear, how does one actually navigate the dance between both? Right? Do you feel like fear actually plays a role inside of this sort of artistic pursuit of your intrinsic motivation? Yeah, I think it's an interesting one. You know, I actually would, would, would challenge the assumption that fear is a, is a stopping point. I think in many ways, you know, fear can also be an incredibly strong compass for you know, life direction decisions that need to be made, conversations that need to be had. There's that simple quote that your success in life can be quantified by the number of difficult conversations you have. It's not entirely true, but I think it's a, it, it makes a great point. So I also think fear can actually be quite a good catalyst for action, or at least um, using fear similarly to curiosity as a signal or a compass, and then moving in the direction of it. I think what causes paralysis more often than, than fear is apathy. Um, and apathy, I think, is the, in some respects, is, is, a, is a bigger danger than, than fear. Can you just describe for anyone listening what apathy might mean if you, as a, just, if you define it in your own terms? The simple conventional definition for apathy is, you know, is a lack of movement or drive to take action of any sort. And with that comes an emotional equivalent you know, there's kind of this apathetic state that emerges around apathy that a lot of people can resonate with the feeling of this sort of, you know, flatness. It's not quite necessarily depression. It's definitely not fear. I mean, fear as an emotion is, is actually highly charged. Yeah. You can feel fear for sure. Uh, and that feeling of fear and how charged it is, I think often catalyzes people to take action. Apathy, I think, is, is, has a, a more dead quality to it. Even if I think about boredom, boredom, I remember when I first really started leaning into boredom, it was one of the most profound teachers I had. Like I hated being bored. I always had to fill my space with something to do or something to be or somewhere to go. But when I sat into the anxiety of boredom, it was a profound teacher and it was a profound compass and it allowed me to reset the room in some ways. Like it wasn't a, it's not necessarily a stopping point. And I, and I love that shift because maybe I'd actually love to hear your perspectives on this. Like, you know, I, I feel like most of my life I've created from that place of lack. Like I didn't want this. I don't want this lifestyle of being in a cubicle. So I used the fear of being stuck there forever to go inspire work in the entrepreneurial world. I didn't want this relationship. And therefore I went into the depths of looking at myself, like there was always a running from that has inspired or motivated action versus this intrinsic sort of desire for creating from love or creating from that, like from a different energy source. And so what are the differences, I guess, in, in creation when one thing is like, if they're both charges, right, they're both feeling states, like, does it matter? And how do you, how do you distinguish between the two? Because I, at least I'm finding like the stuff that I'm creating from love tends to have a higher vibrational quality to it versus the things that were motivated by fear. I mean, well, just to even loop back to boredom for a moment, what's interesting about boredom 
is actually how under-researched and studied and talked about it is as a state and even as a concept. You know, there aren't actually many books that navigate the challenges and causes of boredom and, and benefits of boredom as well and how to, you know, leverage it and cultivate it. So I think boredom in and of itself is actually quite a, quite a fruitful and underexplored topic within psychology. With respect to creating from, from love versus fear, I mean, one thing that comes to mind immediately for me is the difference in, in creativity that is possible when coming from a, a positive versus a negative state. When we're in a negative or fearful state, physiologically, we're sympathetic dominant. You know, our, our, our pupils dilate, our heart rate increases, breathing becomes contracted and tense. And within that state, divergent thinking, which is very closely related to creativity, it's the ability to kind of go broad in your thinking and link a conversation that you had this morning with an insight you had when you were a four-year-old with some thing that you learned in math class or something like that to create some you know new idea about something you can solve. But that, that sort of divergent thinking gets blocked physiologically when we're in a, a fearful state. Rest and digest or relaxation and optimism, divergent thinking, increases. Sean Aker, who's a positive psychologist at Harvard, talks a lot about this. And I think that's, you know, in many ways where people, one of the things people allude to about why creating from, from love is, you know, often much more fruitful. It's because, you know, your creativity is unlocked versus it being suppressed when in a fear or threatened state. And then I think also there's, a, there's an intrinsic versus extrinsic uh, motivation element as well. Being in a flow state, that zone of total immersion in the present moment where you know, learning, creativity, productivity, uh, even overall life satisfaction and sense of meaning increase, your ability to access that state when you're focused on the task at hand increases. But focus on the task at hand decreases with a extrinsic motivation. You're not focused on writing for writing's sake, you're focused on writing to get a, a certain number of blog hits or income or you know, recognition or whatever it is. In sports psychology, they talk about it as task orientation versus ego orientation. They don't use the term ego in the conventional spiritual sense. They actually, you know, ego is interchangeable with self in that sense. So task orientation is the surfer wanting to ride the wave. For the sake of for the sake and joy and pleasure of flow state that comes with riding the wave. Ego orientation is the surfer wanting to ride the wave to look cool to a girl that's watching him from the shore of the beach. And within sports psychology, you know, big focus is having people build up the habit of task orientation because it drastically improves performance. Whenever someone fumbles like a surfer on the wave, it's often driven by clicking out of task orientation, which is conducive to flow, and into ego orientation, which is conducive to mental activity that's not going to serve you within whatever it is you're doing. So good, dude. I'm curious to know what your perspectives are on intuition and what role that plays inside of this sort of task-oriented, creative expression. You know, when you're doing something for the sake of doing it and you're deriving from that pleasure, like, you know, something is still driving that creative force. So like, 
you know, that's when I feel most intuitive, most connected, most aligned when I'm writing from that space. It's there's an energy to intuition that I'm curious to hear your perspectives on. Yeah. The, so the, the spectrum that I think a lot about when it comes to decision making, you know, which is an incredibly important skill as an entrepreneur or leader is intuitive to deliberate. Another way you could put that is, you know, emotional through to rational. So you've got intuition based decision making and you've got kind of deliberation based decision making where you very intentionally and consciously process different variables, different pros and cons. You weight them, you stack rank them to try and kind of systematically and methodically formulate a decision all very consciously. Whereas in intuition, you know, it's more of a bottom-up process where you feel into some sort of a signal, kind of like compass, like we, we described earlier, uh, and, and you make decision based on that. And I think that within spiritual communities, there's a uh, actually an over-indexing on intuition in many ways and an under-indexing on the, the benefits of the deliberation end of that spectrum. And then in more mainstream situations, like maybe a big corporation, there can be a drastic underemphasis on intuitive decision-making and an overemphasis on conscious information processing and deliberate decision-making. And I, I think there's a sweet spot there. And what research shows about effective intuitive decision-making is that you have to you have to feed your intuition with high quality data, and so where people often go wrong is they you know follow their intuition, but they haven't read any books, you know, or talked to any yeah. experts or, or gathered any information on the topic on which they're attempting to make a decision. So their intuition is uh, producing signal with no good data you know, points. Input. Yeah, yeah, with no good data points. Exactly. So. The mistake, obviously, on the other end of the spectrum is that, you know, you're incredibly deliberate and weigh pro and cons lists, and you have had an enormous amount of good data points, and your intuition is giving you a signal that is very strong, that is different to the decision you would make if you're conscious and deliberate, and that, you know, may be a better decision because the unconscious mind processes far orders of magnitude more information than the conscious so, you know, so long as you are feeding yourself with good data points, oftentimes your unconscious is going to synthesize those data points and churn them up for you as a signal in the form of an intuition more effectively than you will be able to consciously assess the different variables or data points and make a decision. But you have to feed the system with good data points for intuition to be effective. Um, so it's yeah. about kind of navigating that sweet spot. And then, you know, with respect to decision-making as well, just to close the loop, I think a lot of it, um, this kind of relates more to, to entrepreneurship specifically is knowing and being able to distinguish between what Bezos, Jeff Bezos calls type one and type two doors. Type one decisions are irreversible. Type two decisions are reversible. If it's a type two decision that's reversible, the risk is infinitely lower and uh, you can benefit from being more intuitive you know, for one simple fact, which is that it's far faster to be intuitive only for, a, you know, for a type one decision that is irreversible. It can be helpful to, you know, even if you've got a strong intuitive or instinct with respect to what direction to go, it can be helpful to, you know, run a more deliberate process in parallel with that to kind of check your, you know, your intuition against your you know, more rational cognitive breakdown. So I, yeah, I, you don't I want to be a wrecking ball. 
I mean, and it's what I'm appreciating is, you know, the level of awareness that's required on that journey. Most people aren't very honest with themselves. And, and, and I think that that lack of honesty causes rash decision-making. But, you know, I find that even if, if I'm going down a route that I have never explored, there's a baseline level of learning that I have to be willing to do or mentorship that I have to be willing yeah. to access in order for me to develop the intuitive sense that can then act in a way that's in alignment with where I'm supposed to go. And, and I think there's, it's a dance. And, and I think most people don't get that dance right, but I think it just comes back down to a lack of honesty, you know? And, 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 and so how do you, I guess, in particular, practice that balance of, of being honest about where you're at while also being incredibly confident in your abilities to manifest or create or actualize anything? Like, how do you, how do you play that role in your own journey of awareness? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. I think there's a couple of things to it. You know, one is being honest with yourself about whether or not you are using the fact that you think of yourself as an intuitive person to avoid putting the work in to develop and hone an intuition that's actually going to produce good decisions. You know, so you take a, let's say, for example, an angel investor. Some of the most experienced angel investors in the world, they can flick through a pitch deck, glance through it over two minutes and instantly their intuition will feed them an incredibly strong signal as to whether it's a yes or a no. But that's because it may be their 5,000th pitch deck and they've spent you know 20,000 hours understanding the mechanics of, of a startups and speaking with startup founders. And so if, if someone is, is, is beginning angel investing and it's the third pitch deck, they should probably not follow that intuitive signal that comes up. I mean, of course, you can still give it weight. And that's important. You should still give it some weight and factor it into the overall equation. But blindly following is, is definitely not you know, necessarily going to produce great results. So I think you've got to be honest about yourself about, you know, number one, are you avoiding putting in work? And number two, how much data have you fed your intuition about the thing that you are having an intuition about? If you're having an intuition about whether to invest or not, how many pitch decks have you looked at? that determines the extent to which you should blindly follow intuition. And then there's a, there's a second point I'll make. It's actually a, you know, a quick tool that people can use at home that's really, really effective for increasing intentionality around intuitive decision-making you know, and, and, and incorporating intuitive decision-making more, especially if you tend to default to a more conscious, deliberative, rational, top-down approach. Uh, and it's called the MacGyver method. It was developed by the producer of the TV show MacGyver and it was what he used to kind of foster his creativity and, and get his creativity going and solve problems using his creativity and what you do is you define whatever the problem is with respect to the decision or thing that you're wrestling with and as a quick side note I think problem definition is one of the most critical skills within all of business and it is it is, I think, one of the places people make mistakes the most is they actually they, they wrestle with a challenge or an issue or a dilemma or how to, how to figure something out. And they actually haven't solved the problem uh, or sorry, haven't, they haven't defined the problem. And so, you know, they're, they're trying to solve for B when in reality the problem is, you know, X. And so problem definition is incredibly important anyway, as a habit to build up the muscle of saying, okay, what problem am I actually trying to solve here? 
However, so the first step is problem definition, defining the problem that you're trying to solve. Then you write the problem down by hand on the top of a page, ideally as a question. So it could be, how do I find a COO that's going to bring my company to the next level? Again, maybe in this case, that's not actually the problem. Maybe the problem is, how do I get you know X, Y, and Z work done? Maybe you don't even need a COO. So if you define the problem properly, maybe the question is different. Maybe the question is actually, you know, how do I get your question? Yeah, yeah, exactly. How do I get my, you know, HR issues solved? Maybe a COO is only one option. So let's just say, for example, the, um, the problem is how to solve the HR issues. You would write that down at the top of a page and then you would go about doing whatever it is you're doing. 24 hours is, is the general normal recommendation. You go for a run, hike, whatever it is, you keep working, you know, just living your life. This is called the incubation period. And during this period, your unconscious is solving for and incubating solutions for the problem that you've clearly defined. Then you come back to the page and you attempt to free write without too much thinking about it, answers to the problem that you're trying to solve or solutions to the problem that you're trying to solve. Oftentimes, the solution will pop out. Your unconscious will process the information surrounding the problem and it will, it will come out really, really quickly. And so that's an example of, of really leveraging the unconscious to do the work for you rather than kind of consciously deliberating and thinking, God, do I need a COO? Do I need a HR outsourced firm? That requires you to trust and letting go, right? Letting go of the idea that you actually have the answers consciously in front of you. Like I have to try really hard to get this answer. I have to do more. It's actually trusting the do less phenomena, the surrender phenomena. The, and so how do you cultivate that trust, right? I think that's a, a shift into a different way of being in a lot of ways. Like that's actually more of like an embodied lifestyle, if you would, of, of, of trusting that your mind is actually this incredible machine or this synthesizing yeah. agent, right? Like, I mean, exactly. Yeah. It's good what, is that, what is the journey of that? Like, cause I can already see it. Like if you would have told me that five years ago, I would have been like, man, you don't know shit. Like you don't know how <laughs> my head breaks. You don't know how my head works, man. Like I would have been like yeah, yeah. resisting the idea of just stepping away. And so yeah. I'm curious to hear your, your, your take on that. Yeah. Well, I'll even just uh, describe kind of how, the form it's taken for myself personally first. So it's funny, myself and my wife have this, this frequent interaction, which has now become a bit of a joke, where she'll ask me, what do we do about X? What do we do about the lease application that you know we need to apply for? What do we do about booking these flights? What do we do about telling this person that you know we need to rechange this? Like Whatever the case is, what do we do about X? My response is always uh i'll just wait and see <laughs> which which can, which which can sound like being you know unwilling to actually think about it or take it seriously or put the time in to solve it but it's because i know that the solution will just pop through because we've defined whatever the problem is the solution will pop through and consciously trying to wrestle with the problem and solve it and hypothesize is just a waste of mental bandwidth and, and a waste of calories and i think people spend so much time consciously trying to solve problems um, rather than just knowing that the problem will emerge by letting their unconscious do the information processing. 
All they have to do is wait. All they have to do is, well, first off, they have to, they have to feed their intuition with good quality data. Yeah. Or you're back into kind of the dangers of certain woo-woo approaches. Uh, they have to define the problem properly, and then they have to just wait and see, and it'll just it'll solve itself in ninety-five percent of situations. And what's been interesting that I've personally found is that you know, as it built a bigger and bigger team and company, you would think that you would become you know increasingly stressed about things and all the open loops that you're dealing with, often hundreds at a time. But for me, at least, this approach has drastically reduced stress because I just don't think about things and they just get solved. So long as I, you know, again, consume high quality data and information and properly define the problems. And in terms of the, the final part of your question around how to build trust in a process like this, I think it's, it's, it's reference points and getting, you know, cycles in where you run a, an approach like this and you realize that the problem does pop through and emerge and then you do it again and the same thing happens and then over time you begin to you know trust the process and that it that it works and, and in fact i can think right now of a, of a problem that's that's looming for me that i could easily be very stressed about but that i don't know i just know that i've, I've done what i can in terms of defining it in terms of you know gathering data and, uh, yeah that my, my sort of my unconscious information processing will take care of the solution well, there's a level of, of surrender that you're actively practicing. You're surrendering the mind and the need for control to this, this overflowing sort of co-creative trust with forces that you, you can't really comprehend or see. Like there's, this, there's, a, there's a dance in that inherent way of being that allows you to have less of a stressful life because you're not actually assuming responsibility for everything. You're you're trusting the right people, the right things, the right intuitive hits to show up exactly as you're meant to, which I can't think of a more like stress-free way of existing because you're not actually, you're, you're literally creating in presence. And so I guess what role does presence play in your life? I'm curious to hear like just in your own journey, even like, you know, as you've evolved into, into the entrepreneur, the leader that you are now, like, what role does presence play in, in the way that you exist in, in every area of your life? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, presence is something that I've str struggled with a lot and still definitely do struggle with a lot. And there's a great quote by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who's the, the uh, often referred to as the godfather of flow. He coined the term flow state and did all the original research on it. He actually passed away, unfortunately, toward the end of last year. I'm paraphrasing here, but he says something along the lines of, the quality of your life is directly equal to the quality of your attention because your attention is the determining factor in the nature of all of your experience and all there is, is the nature of your experience. So I think when it comes down to it, you know, presence, um, quality of your presence and the quality of the experience that you have based on the quality of your presence really is going to determine everything in terms of, you know, how you experience kind of being alive and everything is upstream from that, how happy you are, how fulfilled you are, how much you enjoy things. Um, it's really all determined by, you know, the quality of your presence. For me, it's been, and still is, but very challenging to remain present. I get very lost in the future in particular, less so the past, but I get lost in the future, usually in a positive way. 
being excited about things, planning yeah. things, thinking about things, not necessarily in an anxious way about what will, you know, what will happen, but it still pulls me out of the present. And uh, it's one of the things I want to work on personally a lot is, is really kind of building of present moment awareness again. I think, you know, the, the conventional approach, which is mindfulness meditation, is really one of the strongest ways to do that. Although there's other ways to do that. Journaling can increase mindfulness. Exercise and looking after your physiology and your body properly can increase mindfulness. The thing I've found most helpful is probably mindfulness itself, mindfulness meditation itself. And so it's a big uh, intention of mine for this year that could increase um, how present I am in moment to moment. How do your relationships sort of play a role in your in your personal growth and evolution? I guess in that in that way that you know, mindfulness is easy when you're sitting inside of you know a room, quiet with your headphones on and you're practicing. But applied mindfulness in your life with your relationships and the people and and like so, how do you? I would love to hear just you know what role do your relationships, whether it's your intimate relationship with your partner or your just your your relationship with anybody that you choose to engage with, like how does that actually, how do they play a role inside of your own personal evolution? I think that, yeah, the, the real thing people want is what in psychology is called trait mindfulness or dispositional mindfulness, which is your mindfulness moment to moment, your general life, rather than state mindfulness, which is a temporary period of mindfulness that has emerged maybe due to meditating, maybe also due to other things like being in nature or having just done a really hard work. You know, we really want is is that dispositional mindful trait. And for me, one of the places I I think in some ways that I I find it most difficult to be present is actually within close relationships, probably because that's where a lot of the uncomfortable feelings and emotions that I tend to avoid show up. So I just kind of... (laughs) Block it all out. Um, <laughs> I'm going to put that yeah, in so that, that box over there and just yeah, not look at it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. A big, big challenge I've had over the years is what's called in the trauma literature dissociation. Yeah. Dissociation is where you 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 sort of sever off uncomfortable feelings and emotions. And it can happen to such an extent that you actually lose all sense of yourself because you are so numbed out due to a fear of feeling things that are uncomfortable that you you can't even orient and feel enough feeling or emotion to be able to feel a sense of your own self uh, in extreme cases. Uh, and even, even in more extreme cases, dissociation can also become depersonalization, which is an experience of, of, of not even feeling like a real person where you look in the mirror and you're confused by what you see and you don't even know if you're kind of in a real world around you. That's what happens often to people with very, very severe PTSD is they have depersonalization association. And, and those challenges are really on the other end of the spectrum from presence. And I definitely have, you know, been trying to kind of move down that spectrum from dissociation, depersonalization to presence more and more, but it, it is definitely it's definitely challenging, very challenging. One of the big insights I had last year doing some different personal growth work and, and plant medicine was that the full feeling of any emotion, if you take any emotion that we conventionally think of as negative, whether it's grief or anger or 
jealousy, whatever it is, if you feel it fully, 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 you go as deep into it as you, you know, as it is possible to go. That is always a pleasant experience, fully feeling any emotion, even if it's one that we often think of as a negative emotion is actually a positive experience. Paradoxically, the, the negative experience is largely, at least for myself, in avoiding the feeling of an emotion that some part of me thinks is going to be a negative experience. When in fact, fully feeling it would be a positive right. experience. So it's a little well, bit it's interesting. Yeah. It's interesting you said the word think. What I think will be a negative experience. It's because the mind is getting involved when feeling has nothing to do with the mind. In fact, if you just feel sad without adding an applied meaning to the sadness, it's actually just an energetic yeah. response. Yeah. That's sadness. And it's a beautiful thing, right? Different experiences in life are going to evoke sadness. Different experiences in life are going to ignite fury, but both are like our bodies wouldn't be creating these incredible, intelligent responses to an input if they didn't have utility. And I think because of our limited understanding, I, I feel like there's a, there's a lack of awareness, at least from an emotional standpoint around the gift of these emotions and, and the data points that they can be. Like, I mean, coming back to, to operating from intuition, like a feeling is an intuitive data point in a lot of ways. Like, and I found, at least for me, like the more I allow myself to feel and truly go into it, the more rich that data set actually becomes. Like I'm, I'm accessing more of my ability to synthesize information for myself. I feel more connected to a knowing and, of course, applied to specific areas of life. But nonetheless, it's, it's feeling has done nothing but help my life out. Let's just put it that way. Like I, I can't. Yeah. Yeah. I th well, I think one of the other really important points on the topic of feeling is that you are able to feel positive emotion to the degree to which you are willing to feel negative emotion, yeah. meaning you, you can't selectively edit your emotional color wheel. You can't circle and it contracts mm, in a cyclical, point. circular fashion. You can't just kind of erase that little bit of you know sadness up on the top left and then and then still have all the positive feelings that surround it the whole mm. thing contracts and it and it and, and with that contraction it erases all of the positive emotion it's possible the joy the excitement the love you know whatever it may be so that's something I, I try and remind myself of a lot, which is that it's the, the degree to which I'm willing to feel negative emotions is directly proportional to the degree to which I'm able to feel positive emotions. That's such a beautiful, inspiring reminder for really myself, as well as I hope everyone listening to really be present inside of the feeling that's showing up. Because it's almost like your capacity to feel what is, is the gift. That is the gift. Yeah. And I think in some ways, I mean, and at least I always find this reframe useful because of how my mind works. But it's also, I think, but also the skill alongside the being capacity. You know, it's a skill to be able to actually navigate all the defense mechanisms and patterns that have accumulated throughout childhood and later on into life and actually kind of feel the base emotion underneath all the, all the junk and all the cobwebs. It's leadership training. I mean, I, I really feel like personal leadership, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're a 
you're in charge of leading people or not. Like I think personal leadership is one of the most important um, aspects of personal development that we get to work on, right? Like we all have family members, we all have intimate relationships. We all can show up with more capacity to be present. At least for me, like that's where almost all of the juice has been. There's a great book by, I think it's by Jim Dethmer, The 15 Commitments to Conscious Leadership. And one of those commitments is feeling all feelings. And they're not even referring to personal leadership. They're referring just to straight up people leadership, team leadership. And yeah, the point they make there is that as a leader, it's, you know, you're, you're steering the ship oftentimes with your feelings. One of the things my executive coach, Brian Franklin, who's incredible, uh, always says is that, Good CEOs think their feelings play a role. Great CEOs know their feelings uh, drive the ship or drive the bus, ultimately. And that, that, that aligns to the, the Jim Dethmer commitments of conscious leadership approach. So I think, you know, if you can't, if you can't really, if you can't feel properly, you're, as you said, you're losing so many data points that are critical to, to your team to your strategy, to where you need to go as an organization, to the type of engagement that different people need from you. So you have to, you have to be able to feel things or you, you just blanket, sweep out a, a huge percentage of the information you need to succeed. Dude, I love you. I like, can't wait to like physically hug you. <laughs> like, like deliver like a big old bear hug in person. Like I just... <laughs> I was so looking forward to uh, seeing your face today and just like being in it. And I'm just grateful that I'm just, I just, I love the way you explain things and I just love how brilliant you are. And I love mostly, I, I appreciate how dedicated you are to your own path and your own level of mastery. It's actually one of the things I just connected with you on deeply, right? When we met, it's like that there's an intrinsic desire to just experience more for yourself that I appreciate. And I, I'm just, I want to just make sure I acknowledge that because you're, it's, you're just, just freaking awesome, dude. <laughs> I just, I just love you. <laughs> I appreciate that, dude. And st- straight back at you. I'm sure everyone listening can feel the bromance. So. Yeah, for sure. I <laughs> yeah, pre- appreciate you too, brother. Got it, man. Well, why don't, um, you know, share a little bit about for anyone listening who wants to maybe engage more with the, the flow research Institute and just everything you're doing. I mean, can you just give a quick plug and we'll make all of these links available in the show notes, guys, if you want to go deeper into anything that was discussed on the show today. But yeah, go ahead, brother. Sure. Yeah. So uh, one place that's worth checking out for, for free, hopefully very useful content, is our podcast, Flow Research Collective Radio. We've had guests like Stanford Neuroscientist, Dr. Andrew Huberman, to Laird Hamilton, to Simon Sinek, all sorts of other thinkers and, and speakers and academics and doers. So that's, that's worth checking out. That's Flow Research Collective Radio. You can just Google it. Uh, and then Flow Research Collective is our, our organization, our main peak performance training, which is designed to help business leaders access flow state more consistently. It's called Zero to Dangerous. The word two, not the number two. And zero to dangerous.com is the URL for that if anyone wants to check that out also. Beautiful, beautiful. Got one last question for you, brother. In the midst of everything you're doing, everywhere you're going and everywhere you've been, how do you stay grounded? Mm. I'm going to give a specific answer to that. Uh, It's Wim Hof's breathwork app. I've done it every single morning 
without pretty much without fail for the last 24 months and uh, it has been an incredibly incredibly useful practice to buffer against stress uh, i find that you know when you hold when you do a, a breath hold retention the system go, goes into the same fight or flight response that you get when you're triggered by any kind of external stressor and training that multiple times every single morning is, is just incredibly helpful in buffering against the stress response when it does occur so i do that for 20 minutes every morning without fail and it works great i love it brother well again i'm so grateful we got to connect again and thank you for just dropping all sorts of wisdom Everybody, that is a wrap for this week's episode of Stay Grounded. I'm your host, Raj. This is your new friend, Rianne. And from us, stay grounded. We'll chat soon. Thanks for joining us today on this episode of Stay Grounded. I hope you found this interview helpful as you create your own ways to live an extraordinary life. For more resources and support, please visit www.rajjana.com forward slash stay grounded to join the official Stay Grounded Facebook group, a place where aspiring life enthusiasts can connect and ignite passion for life together. My hope is that the positivity, content, resources, and support in this group will resonate with you on a deeper level. That what you hear in our podcast, read in our thoughtful posts, or learn in our courses will empower you to live with intention, uncover true purpose, and challenge the internal dialogues that stop you from being who you really want to be in your life. Again, thanks so much for joining us. Stay grounded.